Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. Before my message today and my prayer, I want to take this opportunity of thanking the church for providing an opportunity for us to say in some ways in a more informal setting a farewell to one another later on after the service today. And I thank our lay leaders and our team for making this possible. It's something that I look forward to in terms of seeing you, but also do, as you can imagine, with mixed emotions. And even though I'm around for the next couple of weeks and we have some glorious services to enjoy, I want to thank those who have written to me and sent cards and notes and also regrets that they can't be with us today. I can't respond to all of you individually, unfortunately, but I want to say a hearty thank you to each one of you. And every expression of gratitude and love and support goes right to my heart and means a great deal. Every single one of the notes I have received is treasured in my heart. But I look forward to our event afterwards and as an extension in a sense of the ministry that is an integral part of the church that we can have some fellowship. And I think we all need some fellowship right now. Let us pray. A loving and gracious God, we turn to you at all times in our lives. But in times of transition and also global uncertainty, it seems that your love and your guidance means even more. In this message, may you hold us in your hands. And may you give us the assurance of the power of your grace and the overwhelming nature of your love. So take my lips and move them, that they may speak with the power of your Spirit, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I want to introduce to you this morning a very important person. In fact, the third very important person that I've introduced to you so far during Advent. And this is a person who is known as the son of Belakiah and the grandson of Ido, which I'm sure means a lot to you. He was someone who was well known for building things, particularly temples and wanting temples to be built well and to be big. He was someone of immense faith who had a belief that God could do wonderful things and that God could change the whole trajectory of history. He was somebody who was also a person of peace and someone who desired that there would be a peaceful world. He was someone who had a great longing for a monarch that would rule things well 
and was a passionate monarchist. The person's name was Zechariah. Now, for those of you who were here three weeks ago, you're saying, Dr. Sterling is losing his mind. He's already introduced Zechariah to us. Has he only got one sermon this Advent? This is another Zechariah, not the one that I spoke of before, who was the father of John the Baptist. In fact, this Zechariah existed somewhere in the 6th or the 5th century before the arrival of Jesus Christ. And so he dates back. He was known as one of the minor prophets, not to be distinguished on a qualitative basis from the major prophets, but a minor prophet because of where he appears in the Bible. Zechariah is still a great person. And we encounter him, believe it or not, in the New Testament as well. And again, if you think I'm losing my mind and having a Palm Sunday text on the third Sunday of Advent, which is very unusual, you will understand that in that text and following on from Jesus' triumphal entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the words of Zechariah are quoted from some 500 years before. So there is a link, especially in the mind of the gospel writer Matthew, between Zechariah's prophecy and the arrival of Jesus, of the nature of the kingship of Jesus, and the desire on the part of Zechariah. Above all, Zechariah looked to the future. And when he gave his prophecy, his hope was that there would be a new king, a new monarch who would lead the country of Israel. Someone who would restore things to where they should be. He stood very much in the line of other prophets such as Haggai in the hope that a new king, a new monarch would be able to do something special would be able to bring a new era for the people of Israel. Now, even just recently on, on, on social media, I've heard people denigrating the Old Testament prophets and saying that they really don't have anything to say in our day and age, and they're an antiquated, out-of-style, out-of-fashion group of people may be a little bit eccentric. I would like to go on record as saying I differ. I differ because not only were they writing within the context of their own time, five, six, seven hundred years before the arrival of Jesus, but they were also pointing the way forward Maybe they were condemning the sins of their nation. Maybe they were pointing a finger at the injustices that were around them. But they were also prophets of hope. And out of this prophecy of hope, they had the conviction that despite the state of affairs in which people found themselves in, in the future, God would restore the joy of Israel. And so I stand by the Zacharias. 
And I think that that part of Jewish history is important for us, as it was important in preparing the way of Jesus of Nazareth. Let me read again what Laurie read for us beautifully a few moments ago from Zechariah, and you'll see why I think it's important. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he. Humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As Canadians, we've heard that before, haven't we? He shall have dominion from sea to sea we add to see. But this notion that a king would come that would in fact defeat those who are the perpetrators of military evil, who, who use power to subjugate the weak, that would bring peace and restore to Israel the peace that it deserves, to Ephraim and to Jerusalem, and to return them to a place of peace and harmony. Zechariah, while certainly condemning the injustices of his day, was nevertheless an optimistic prophet who looked to the future restoration of his people Israel and the arrival of a new king. He also stood in contrast to the emerging empires that were all around Israel at the time. Certainly, 150, 200 years later, with Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire, which was in many ways a bloody empire, Zechariah wanted a king of peace and a king of justice and a king of hope. So he stood in contrast, not only to Darius the Persian before, but Alexander the Great who was to follow by hoping for something wonderful to happen. And this is precisely where we look at Zechariah. We look at Zechariah through the lens of the New Testament text. And the belief in the New Testament, and in Matthew in particular, that the arrival of Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise of Zechariah that there would be a king of peace. And what we have here then is a sense that Jesus is not only the fulfillment of what Zechariah wanted, which he was, but that he was also the embodiment of the peace and the justice that Zechariah desired. What we have then in Matthew is a reflection on Zechariah about the nature of the kingship of Jesus of Nazareth. And that kingship becomes very clear in the New Testament. And you cannot read your Bible without confronting a Jesus who fulfills exactly what Zechariah had in mind. 
a few years ago, and I have told this story to some of you before, maybe in a study or elsewhere, but I was driving down the Don Valley Parkway, minding my own business, going at exactly 90 kilometers an hour, the legal speed limit, when a car pulled in front of me. Actually, it was a white van. And this white van's doors were plastered with stickers. And the stickers were all Christian stickers. There was the ichthus, the sign of the fish. There was something about Jesus and Mary. And, and then there was another one which was bigger than all the others. And it simply said, God allows U-turns. Now at 90 kilometers an hour, going down the Don Valley Parkway, it gives you no peace to see a van saying, God allows U-turns, does it? I was mortified. I braked. I kept my distance. I was a good driver. But I was suspicious of the Christian in front of me. <laughs> I know that he probably didn't mean it literally in terms of his driving style, although I must say, he was going a little quickly. But what he was saying was the truth. And the truth is that God in fact, as sometimes U-turns. The God turns things around to goes 180 degrees from where things had been going. And when you think of the monarchy of Israel, this is a good thing. I mean, the monarchs that Zechariah was referring to and some of those that followed, like Ahab and Jehoshaphat and others, were corrupt. They were kings that led Israel into idolatry, led them into injustice, and ultimately led them into even a state of war. And so, these are the kings that Zechariah wanted replaced. And when Jesus arrived on the scene, those who followed Jesus saw in him a monarch. And for centuries, for years, we have sung, have we not, in our own very hymns, two of which we sang this morning, the nature of his kingship. We sing joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. We sing, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. We recognize the kingly nature of Jesus. The New Testament understood the kingly nature of Jesus. And he was a complete U-turn from those that had preceded him. A complete reversal, but in line with what Zechariah had promised. And when you look at the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, you see someone who was completely unlike the monarchs of Israel. One of the most beautiful things I've ever read on this was written by the Christian writer Max Lucado. And Max Lucado said this, and it's a beautiful definition of the person of Jesus. He said, he came not as a flash of light or as an unapproachable conqueror, but as one whose first cries are heard by a peasant girl and a sleepy carpenter. Mary and Joseph were anything but royal. 
Yet heaven entrusted its genuine treasure to these simple parents. It began in a manger, this momentous moment in his time. He looked anything but a king, his face prunish and red, his cry still the helpless and piercing cry of a dependent baby, majesty in the midst of the mundane, holiness in the filth of sheep manure and sweat. This baby had overseen the universe, these rags keeping him warm were the robes of eternity. His golden throne room worshipping angels had been replaced with kind but bewildered shepherds. Curious, the royal throne room. No tapestries covering the windows, no velvet garments on the courtiers, no golden scepter or glittering crown. Curious, the sounds in the court. Cows munching, hooves crunching, a mother humming, a baby nursing. It could have begun anywhere, the story of the king. But curiously, it began in a manger. Step into the doorway. Peek through the window. The king is here. Wow. This is what Zechariah hoped for. And when you look at the very existence of Jesus, as Lucado has pointed out, from his birth as the lowly infant in a manger, to the culminating moment when they put a crown of thorns on his head and mocked him as king of the Jews. King of the Jews. Jesus was the fulfillment of Zachariah's wish. He was the humble one. He was the peaceful one. He was God's king. But there is always, it strikes me, a paradox in this text. And actually a paradox in the whole way in which we look at Jesus. I mean, Zechariah says, you know, behold, look at him coming to be enthroned. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Colossians, say, all things will be under his feet. Under his feet. There is a sense in which this Jesus is someone who is mighty, and wonderful, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the high, the mighty, the glorious, the powerful. People refer sometimes to Jesus in the light of a name that was used for God called El Shaddai, which means all-powerful. In Greek, they would write that he is the Pantocrator, that he is the Great One. He is the magisterial one. How do we reconcile then the humble nature of Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord who was crucified, who was born in a humble way, and who was a man of peace, with this notion of a God who is all-powerful, who sits on high and puts all things under his feet? One of the joys of clearing out my office, and I've said this every week, is being able to look at books that I'd forgotten that I even had. And there was one book by a theologian called Donald Blosh, and I hadn't read Donald for years. 
But all of a sudden, I just blew the dust off it, you know, like you do with your Bibles. And he, sorry, sorry, sorry. I've never seen a dusty Bible in any of your homes, just to be honest, all right? Maybe unopened, but not dusty, right? And I open this book, I blow the dust off it, and I start to read it. And I couldn't stop. It was called Jesus Christ. And I'd forgotten what he had said about Jesus. And he dealt with this very issue, one that's always bothered me. How do we uphold a humble Jesus, and yet the King of kings and Lord of lords under whose feet everything stands? And he says the following. He calls this a Christocracy. And it's the sense that does not mean that the church obtrusively tries to force its convictions on the state or on a nation. Its true meaning is that the church announces what it believes to be the word of Christ for the world and that it does not use any other means of persuasion than the truth of its message. That is a Christocracy that relies not on the power of the sword or the government, but on the prophetic means of the word and the priestly means of prayer and leaves it to the king himself to make these means effective. In other words, Christ reigns on his own terms. He does not reign on the basis of, of culture or of power or of the sovereignty that is known in this world. He neither requires it nor endorses it. And yet there are many who look at the Jesus through the lens of historic oppressions and understandably at times question the authenticity of the person of Jesus and his rule because they do not see embodied in the church the humility, the love, the justice, the forgiveness that was there in Jesus of Nazareth himself. But be under no illusion, just because Jesus came in an humble form, the God came in person incarnate in a child, does not mean that he ceases to be God, or that God's reign is not complete. It is. So how then do we look at Jesus now after his kingly arrival? How do we deal with the fact that here we are believing that he is the ruler, that he reigns, and yet it seems that when we look around, there is so much that still needs to be done. Well, maybe we need some Zacharias again. Maybe we need some voices that point again to the future. It's not that Jesus is not king and has not come. He has. But that fulfillment of his kingdom is something for which we still wait for his return. We are, in a sense, like Zechariah again, between two worlds. But the vision that Zechariah had 
of a kingdom of peace, of a kingdom of justice, of a kingdom of humility, of a kingdom where the power of God was not made through the sword, but through sacrificial love. This is the kingdom for which we now wait. But like Zechariah, speaking to his own people before the arrival of Jesus, we should prepare ourselves for that coming. And very often, my friends, people speak and write prophetically about things that are to come, And when we look back in time at those, we see that in fact they were real, but we see them after the event, ex eventu. And I was reading, again, one of those books that I have stored, A History of the Empire Club of Canada and the great speeches that were given at the Empire Club over the years. And I went back to June 1947, believe it or not, to um, an incredible moment where Colonel the Honorable George A. Drew addressed the Empire Club. And he said this in 1947. If the lesson we said and we had heard in 1939 is still correct, then the hope for peace depends upon the firmness with which all the democracies tell Russia this year by November or when the foreign secretaries meet again that the people of the world, of the free world, do believe in the principles laid down in the Atlantic Charter and subscribed to by Russia as well as the free democracies and that those free nations do want to assert just as strongly as Russia the right of Russia to determine their own course within their own bounds, but they are also insistent that Russia shall not impose by force its form of government upon any other nation against its will. 1947. Sometimes, you see, people give speeches, give declarations, and in fact, at times, it appears that they are not fulfilled and that they are not coming apart and they are not happening. And that happens. But does it not mean that even though it might not seem apparent that everything is falling in line with what you have to say that you should not say it? Does the sense that we sometimes feel that the kingdom of God is not fully realized mean that we do not continue to speak for it? Do we not have the call of Christ to continue to uphold him as Lord and Savior? And do we not have to then ourselves live in accordance with the vision that we hold out? I think we do. And I think for this congregation, this church, at a moment of great transition, it's a time also to continue to ask yourselves, why are we here? For what purpose do we exist? And what word do we have to proclaim? If Zechariah were before you right now, 
he would hold out his vision of hope and joy. And he knew that he would have to wait. And it came in Jesus. And we know we have to wait until the return of Jesus. But let's hear him speak to us this morning. Zachariah, who I introduced. Regret, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Toronto. Shout aloud, O children of Timothy Eaton. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off from the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations, and his dominion shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. This Advent, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Oh,